1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. I'll start by reading it. should be up on the screen as well, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let me pray for God's help this morning. Father, uh, we come to you now and we open your word and we want to hear from you. We don't really want to hear from Mike alone. We want to hear from you. And so I pray that you would unstopper our ears, you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts so that we can hear what you want us to hear, what you have to say. Help us to see more of Jesus this morning. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. This morning I'm going to do something that's a little bit impolite. I'm going to talk about death for a while. Uh, death is sort of a, a taboo to discuss in our culture. You know, it's, it's okay to mention it, and then you move on really quickly, but it's kind of bad manners to dwell on our mortality. In the 1950s, as modern medicine became more and more prevalent, there was an anthropologist named Jeffrey Gorer who wrote an essay with this scandalous title. The essay was called The Pornography of Death. It had nothing to do with pornography, but in the essay, what he's doing is he obs he's observing how one of the side effects of the way that we do medicine now is that death is mostly hidden away from us, sort of secretive, the way sex used to be or is. Uh, for most of human history, death was visible. It was ever-present, and that's not a good thing. Like, we should be grateful for modern medicine and science that have saved us from many causes of early death, especially for kids. But we should also be aware that right now, the way that death usually happens for human beings is that people decline and die while tucked away in hospitals and nursing homes and hospices. And so we don't often have to think about death if we don't want to. You know, for most of us, the only corpse we've really seen is that brief glance that we give to the open casket funeral. You know, we glance at it and then we move on. We don't want to linger there. And so Jeffrey Gorer was saying in the 1950s that death has become the new unmentionable. Psalm 90.12 says that it is wise to number our days. But for many modern people, doing that, thinking about our own death, is considered morbid and kind of unhealthy. We, we don't want to plan for death, and we don't want to live like it's going to happen at any moment. Have you, have you tried to talk with your parents or your grandparents about moving into a nursing home? How did that conversation go? <laughs> it doesn't go well. We do not want to plan for death, but what happens when death becomes undeniable? What happens when the reality of mortality forces us to wrestle with the difficult questions of, 
Okay, so what happens next? As we've been walking through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, we've seen how Paul was, he was driven out of town before he had a chance to discuss all the nuances of the Christian faith with the Thessalonians. He just got the basics, but there's many things that they were not aware of. And throughout the letter, he shows different tones. Sometimes he's really encouraged, and he's saying, I, I can't believe, it's so good to me how you are continually growing in your faith. At other times, like Kelsey preached on last week, he's more pushing and urging and imploring. I, I really want you to change direction or, or continue in this. But look at the tone of the very first verse in our passage, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And down in verse 18, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. In this section of the letter, Paul wants to educate. He wants to fill in the gaps of their knowledge so that the believers in Thessalonica could encourage, reassure, strengthen each other when they experience death around them. The Thessalonians were dealing with this question, what do, what do we do with death? Apparently, in this church, they had just witnessed the deaths of multiple people in their community. Some think that was due to martyrdom. It could have also been people dying for natural causes. And when those brothers and sisters died, people they knew were believers, the Thessalonians were confused and scared about what would happen to them. They needed help to learn how to think about death. And I suggest that we do as well. All of us, at one point or another, we will see death, not just as faraway news, but up close to us, very close to us. In the past year, we've, we've as a church, we've experienced a lot of loss. I'm, I'm thinking of Rocky and Kathy Harju, thinking of John Brecky and Ralph Selke. And I, as, as your pastor, I, I hear your prayer requests. I, I, I talk to you guys. I know that there's a lot more as well. You, you guys have lost parents and grandparents, siblings and children. You've lost friends and loved ones. In 2018, my mom died with, uh, after a battle with breast cancer. I've got a picture of her up there. And recently on a vacation, we brought Julian to visit her grave. Um, he's who... Or she is who he was named after. Her name was Julie. He's Julian. And so it's right in front of you. What happens when death is right in front of you? What do we do with that? What should godly grief and hope look like? And that's what this passage in 1 Thessalonians is all about. And there's one big idea that I think Paul wants us to hear this morning. If you hear nothing else, it's this. When Christians see death, we must encourage one another because God will raise the dead. So Paul's goal is that we at a church, as a church, would actually encourage one another when we see death. And so he gives three encouraging details about the resurrection of the dead when Jesus returns. Here they are. First, God will raise the dead like he raised Jesus. Second, God will raise the dead with power. And third, God will raise the dead to be with him forever. So we're going to walk through this passage and just take those one at a time. Let's look at the first one. God will raise the dead like he raised Jesus. Look with me again at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It's pretty common knowledge that people grieve in different ways. That's natural and normal and fine. But Paul, in this passage, wants to teach us that there are certain kinds of grief that are unhealthy and unhelpful for us. So he explicitly mentions grief without hope. 
uh, and I've got a chart up here. That's on the left-hand side here. Hopeless grief. Those who grieve without hope are often consumed and overwhelmed by the emotions that accompany death. And then years or even decades after that loss, they may fall into bitterness, despair, a, a, a darkness that doesn't ever seem to lift. The view of death here is that death has won. It's the victor, and I'm the loser. Maybe you find yourself in that category and you know somebody who's like that. However, in my experience as a pastor, I've also seen many Christians, especially, can I say, Christians in the Midwestern, northern Minnesota, sort of stiff upper lip stoicism kind of culture, a lot of Christians fall into the opposite error, which I'll call griefless hope. These sorts of people think about death entirely with their mind. It's an intellectual exercise that never sinks down deep into their emotions. They don't feel it. In the Iliad, that book that you read in high school and then forgot about, you know, the, the epic poem from ancient Greece, Achilles tells the father of the fallen Hector, says, bear up, nothing will come of sorrowing for your son. So in modern language, you might hear it said like this, look, grieving won't help anything. Sure, you can grieve at the funeral, but then move on. You know, death just is what it is. In, in the secular setting, there's a certain brand of this. You know, death is natural. It's the circle of life. It's nothing to be afraid of. But in the church, there's another brand of this that, that is quick with the Christianese cliches and the platitudes. You know, this is the now-now. She is with the Lord. The Lord works all things together for good. God is good. Everything happens for a reason. And while those statements are all true, they are entirely future-oriented without any sensitivity for the present moment. Whereas hopeless grief falls into the opposite error. It's entirely present-oriented without any vision of how things could get better in the future. Now, maybe you see yourself falling into one of those categories, and I don't say this to shame you. I say this to show you a better way. Paul does not want us to grieve without hope. He does not want us to hope without grief. We must have both. Grief and hope are not mutually exclusive. It is good and right to feel deeply and even to rage against death because the Bible presents death as an enemy. Tim Keller puts it this way, death is the great interruption, tearing loved ones away from us or us from them. Death is the great schism, ripping apart the material and immaterial parts of our being and sundering a whole person. Death is our great enemy, more than anything. It makes a claim on each and every one of us, pursuing us relentlessly through all our days. When Jesus lost his friend Lazarus, he was standing outside of the tomb. We read in John 11, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Can you imagine Jesus Christ crying ugly tears with snot on his face, feeling all the emotions in that moment? Then Jesus deeply moved again, and actually that English translation doesn't capture what the Greek is. It's, it's literally snorting with anger at death. 
Jesus came to the tomb. Jesus did not stifle his emotions about death, and yet he did not allow those emotions to overwhelm him and suffocate his joy. And so the question for us then is, how can we do this? How can we see death as an enemy and yet also have hope for the future? Paul has an answer in our passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, and this is verses 14 and 15. Look at it with me. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Instead of offering a little platitude about resurrection, Paul offers proof of resurrection. God has already raised someone from the dead. Jesus went to the grave first, and Jesus was the first one to burst his way out. And Paul declares that just as it happened to Jesus, so it will happen to every dead Christian. How? Verse 14 says, through Jesus. Paul says elsewhere that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He is also the way that God will raise his people. In other words, Jesus is the battering ram that breaks down death's gates, and he is the first one to lead the charge through it. Jesus is the key that unlocked the prison door of death, holding all of us captive. He is the explorer who discovered a new land of eternal life, and he is the ship that will bring the pilgrims to that new home. The way to have hope in grief is to believe that he died for your sake, yes, and to believe that he rose for your sake. The gospel is both. His death paid the debt of sin. His resurrection gives you the riches of eternal life. His death washed you clean. His resurrection gives you hope in a new and immortal body. You've got to have Good Friday and Easter together. There's one more thing I want to mention about these verses. Did you notice what Paul calls deceased Christians? What he calls them? Those who are asleep. And, and perhaps some of you might, might stumble on that a little bit. It can sound insincere, you know, kind of like a Hallmark card way of explaining death, a, a way to sugarcoat it, a, a euphemism, like they passed away, they moved on, they're lo no longer with us. There is an ugly and undeniable finality to death. So why is Paul using these words? I think it's an allusion to a story about Jesus that we find in Mark 5. A man named Jairus asked Jesus to come and to heal his sick daughter, but by the time that Jesus got there, the girl was already dead. And so we read, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, hear this. He said, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. How insensitive of Jesus. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and immediately they were overcome with amazement. 
Now, the words that Jesus speaks here, which we actually have recorded for us in the original Aramaic that Jesus would have spoken, these are some of the most tender in all the four Gospels. I wonder if that's actually why they're recorded in the Aramaic. Some have translated it as, honey, it's time to get up. What is Jesus facing when he walks into this room and there is a corpse of a 12-year-old girl in front of him? He is facing the most deadly, the strongest, the most formidable enemy that is on this planet, in this universe. The unconquerable force of death. And what he does is he, with a little tug of his hand, he pulls the girl through it gently. That's why I'm so encouraged by Paul's metaphor of death as sleep. That ugly and haunting and cruel reality of death. For Jesus, it's just a nap. It's just a doze, a snooze. We will wake up. And when we do, like a child being woken up by a parent, the first face we will see is Jesus' face. Just like he did, we will certainly die, every one of us. But just like he did, we will certainly rise. So God will raise the dead like he raised Jesus Next verse, verse 16, God will raise the dead with power. Let's read this verse again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So having just explained to these grieving people that their brothers and sisters who died will wake up like Jesus woke up, Paul now paints a picture of what is that wake-up call going to look like? You know, when Jesus comes back to earth, the dead open their eyes and see again, what are they going to see? You know, and you might have a picture of what the end times will look like, you know? Might look like the, the 2012 movie, and, you know, fireballs and apocalypse and chaos and all that. Or you might have that, that cliche picture of heaven, you know, choirs with robes singing in perfect angelic harmony as we ascend to glory, you know, something like that. Paul's description of Jesus' return might be surprising for you then. Because actually what he does is he doesn't describe what it will look like. Rather, he uses three descriptions of sound. Sounds that we will hear when Jesus returns. So let's take a look at, at each one of these. Because each one is meant to emphasize one thing. Jesus' power. Jesus' power. So first, the Lord will descend with a cry of command. If you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, you've seen... Captain Jack Sparrow crying out orders, shouting orders to his crew. That's the sense of this phrase here. It is the ship captain's orders that leads to snap attention and action. Uh, Kyle makes fun of me because I'm usually not one for sports metaphors. You know, the sports ball just kind of goes over my head. It's not my thing. Uh, but based on what Kyle has told me, if the baseball coach yells, slide, if the coach yells slide, then the player slides immediately, doesn't listen and take it in and go, okay, should I do this or not? The player assumes that the coach has a better control and command of what's going on, and so they listen to the command. And now we have to picture, you know, driving by a cemetery, and we see a guy standing there in front of the tombstones. He's got an audience here, and he just shouts, hey, you, get up! We're like, that dude's crazy. I'm not going in there, especially at night. You know, but that's just what Jesus did to Lazarus. 
And that's the sense of this cry of command. When Jesus says, rise, you listen. And this is an illustration of his power. Jesus does not need to wave his hands or do a magic incantation in order to raise the dead. Just like God speaking in Genesis 1, bringing light and life as easily as a word. Jesus comes back and his words contain power to bring corpses to life. Second, the Lord will descend with the voice of an archangel. Now, it may surprise you that archangels, as much as you know, some people talk about them, they're only mentioned twice in the Bible. It's here and then a kind of weird verse in Jude. You know, that's it. We don't know much about them at all. But it seems like the point that Paul is making here is that Jesus will not be alone when he comes back to raise the dead. So going back to that ship captain metaphor, it, it, it's think, we think of uh, Captain Jack Sparrow, he's shouting an order, and then that order gets repeated by the officers all around the crew. So, you know, hard to starboard, hard to starboard, that sort of thing is going on here. When Jesus returns, he speaks with an army behind him all as a demonstration of his authority and power over death. Finally, the Lord will descend with the sound of the trumpet of God. Throughout the Bible, trumpets always announce big events. Think of Jericho, when the people blew trumpets and the walls of the city fell down. You know, the trumpet, uh, I was talking to a trumpet player in the first service. He said, you know, back then it probably wouldn't have been a bugle or something like that. I don't know, he had done... You know, the history, it didn't have valves and all that. And he was telling me, yeah, it was probably one of the loudest instruments in the ancient world. I don't know how much louder you could get than that. And honestly, it's one of the loudest instruments now. I don't know if we've ever had a trumpet in our worship team, but I can imagine it would be really hard to mix the sound and get it to sound good and not have it overwhelm. Now, why is this relevant? It's because people always speculate and theorize, ever since the days of Jesus, about the timing of the end of the world. And honestly, I've, I've had people come to me and they'll say things like, oh man, the world's going crazy. I don't know, this might be the end times. We're always wondering, is this it? Did it start? Is this the end of the world? Now the Bible does say that the end of the world will come when we least expect it. And next week, Zach Williams is going to cover that when we look at chapter 5. But here, Paul is telling us that when it comes... We will not miss it. <laughs> Trumpets will blast. It'll be like, whoa, that's louder than my alarm clock. And the dead will rise. Why does this help us encourage each other? Many scholars have noticed how, how similar this verse is to ancient parades that welcomed a king. So the king comes back, and you're holding a parade to welcome his victory. They emphasize the, you know, celebrating the leader who protects and defends. And we have a perfect, selfless leader who powerfully protects us even at the cost of his own life. There's a famous part of Revelation 19. Jesus is described as, as returning on a white horse. You've probably heard this before. Then I, heard heaven, or then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now there's one crucial detail that we are given about what Jesus will be wearing when he returns, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Before the battle is even started at the end of the world, when Jesus returns to finally defeat evil and death and make all things new, Jesus walks into the battle and he's already bloody. Why? Because he has already won the decisive victory. He has already conquered death. 
through dying. A, a Roman torture device and a tomb could not contain him. And so when Jesus returns, there's no question about who will win. He's already won. That is worthy of a parade. Now, this has a particular application when we consider how we grieve, which is what this passage is all about. It's become a cliche, but sometimes you hear Christians say, you know, it was more of a celebration than a funeral. Sometimes they'll even call it a celebration of life ceremony. It's true. After everything we've seen so far, it's clear that Christian funerals allow the presence of grief. In fact, if you don't have grief at a funeral, something is wrong there. But they also give the promise of hope. In fact, Christian funerals should just be really confusing to outsiders. Just a, just a paradox of opposites. Like on the one hand, I see outrage and anguish over death. On the other hand, I see joy and anticipation for Jesus to return. We know because of the power of Jesus, we know that even though we miss our mothers, our fathers, our children, our friends, we know that in a short little while, we will hear trumpets and the dead will rise. What if, I don't know how, how often you hear trumpets, maybe you have a kid in band or something, you have to suffer through band concerts like I did, you know. What if whenever you heard the sound of a trumpet, it was a reminder to yourself that Jesus is coming back with power? Every time you hear a trumpet, Remind yourself that as powerful as death seems, and it does seem really powerful when it's right in front of you, as powerful as death seems, there is nothing, nothing more powerful than the word of our Lord who can rise every single Christian and take them out of a casket into the parade of hope. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And then Paul kind of teaches us a, a little song that we should sing or a little jig that we should dance on the grave of death. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, God will raise the dead like he raised Jesus. God will raise the dead with power. And lastly, God will raise the dead to be with him forever. Look with me at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. All right, everyone clear on that verse? Good, let's get out of here. No, I'm just kidding. If you are a little confused about this verse, you are not alone. Uh, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many New Testament scholars, this is one of the most debated verses in all the New Testament. And while I don't want to spend too much time on this debate because it's really not the main point of this verse, I do want to help you get started with reading and interpreting this verse, get your mind working. So, uh, everyone agrees that what this verse seems to be describing is that when Jesus returns, the way he ascended into heaven, when he returns, he'll be coming down and we will be lifted up to meet him and there will be some sort of gathering in the air. The question comes and the debate comes, okay, so where do we go from there? We're all hanging out in the air. Do we go up? Do we go down? Where, where do we go? And there's basically two main views and they differ on which 
word you emphasize in the verse. So the first view is that we follow the trajectory of Christians. So Jesus comes down, he lifts us up, and then we follow the trajectory and we go continue upwards to heaven, which is uh, sometimes, or it's based on the word caught or seized up, grabbed up. Uh, This view is sometimes called the rapture. Uh, It's the belief that when Jesus comes back, there will be a secret removal of Christians before the end of the world comes. The second view is that we follow the trajectory of Jesus. So we're all meeting in the air, and then we follow Jesus back down to earth, which is based on that word meet or welcome. So in the Greek, this is a technical word uh, that is elsewhere used for meeting a king after he returns from war. So the king would be coming into the city, the people would go out of the city, welcome him, and escort him back into the city. So in this second view, rather than God lifting us up and taking us away, Christians are welcoming the king where he will establish his kingdom back on earth. Now, which view is correct? Not going there. (laughs) Our church does not take a stance on this minor issue. This is not a gospel issue. And our our pastors actually hold uh, different opinions and convictions about this. So Pastor Dean, who preaches over at, at Chester Park, he leans toward the first view. I personally lean towards the second view. I don't know about Kyle because, you know, who's Kyle anyway? He's on sabbatical. I haven't asked him. As a church, we do not believe that this is a matter that should divide us, even if we have different interpretations and opinions. So, if you are interested in going deeper on this, in using this sermon as a springboard, you want to study this and be a Bible nerd and all that, I've got a book recommendation up here for you. It's in Zondervan's Counterpoint series called Three Views on the Rapture. So, what you've got in this book is three world-class scholars who have different opinions about this topic. And they model how to charitably disagree. So they put down their view, they respond to each other, and usually what they do is they say, you know what, what I really appreciate about this other view is this. This is really helpful. I happen to interpret things a little bit differently. So the whole CounterPoint series from Zonderman is fantastic if you want to get into these secondary or tertiary issues. But let's move on from the debate because, again, I don't think that is the main point of the verse. And actually, most Bible scholars agree, yeah, this isn't the main point in the verse, but we'll debate about it because we're Bible scholars. That's what they do. What everyone agrees is the main point is at the end of the verse. And so we will always be with the Lord. Regardless of whether or not this verse describes a rapture, there is one thing that is sure. This verse describes a reunion. At the end of it all, when Jesus returns, all of our brothers and sisters, dead or alive, from any age or time or race or tribe or nation, will always, forever, eternally, finally be with the Lord, with our master, with our king, with our savior and friend. I mentioned this a little bit the last time I preached, but I believe that goodbyes are a mark of the fall. All of us, whether we are Christian or not, we have this innate human longing to be with those we love. We long for there to be no distance between us. It's difficult to even imagine a time in which we will never have to say goodbye again. There are many parts of the Lord of the Rings movies that make me cry. One of them is at the end of The Return of the King. Frodo and Sam have destroyed the ring. They're waiting on the side of Mount Doom to die. They're remembering the life they said goodbye to, the home they left. They're remembering the fields, the strawberries with cream. Rosie, uh, Sam says, Rosie Cotton dancing. If ever I was to marry a girl, it would have been her. Sam 
and Frodo are miraculously rescued by the eagles. And the very next scene, which I've got a picture of, is in my opinion, a picture of what this reunion will be like. Just a little taste. The hobbits open their eyes and they see their friends. No more goodbyes. This is a picture of what Paul wants us to believe. When Jesus returns, you will open your eyes and you will see him first. And then you'll look around and you'll say, my family is here. And then, and here's the kicker, you will never not see them again. You'll never not see them again. Now, in this moment, I want you to notice your emotions right now. As, as I talk, as I think about these things, I find myself getting emotional with just this profound, bittersweet longing in my soul. That is the combination of grief and hope. That is hopeful grief. That is exactly where we should be when we think about death. It hurts. And yet, I will see them soon. Church family, whenever death occurs in our midst, our great calling is not to pat each other on the back. Our great calling is not just to bring each other a meal. Those are good. Our great calling is to encourage each other, to model for each other hopeful grief that is grounded in the sure belief that Jesus will return. When Christians see death, we must encourage one another because God will raise the dead. And so I'm going to end by talking about two ways that we can do that. How can we encourage each other? Both of these ways begin with the letter R. So first, remember our resurrection. Paul does not want us to be uninformed concerning these things, so remember them. And let me say that if you are not a Christian, try and answer this question for yourself. Take it home, think about it. What is keeping me from believing in the resurrection of Jesus? Maybe you have a, a clear answer right off the bat. I know what's keeping me from believing that. Maybe you don't and you've never really thought about it. It'd be a good conversation to have over a cup of coffee or tea. But if you are a Christian, remember the resurrection again. Yeah, I know the resurrection. I do Easter every year. Yeah, I know it intellectually. It's in our statement of faith and all that. Remember it down deep in your bones. Meditate on what it means that God has the power to put breath in a corpse. Imagine what it will be like to see him return and to hear the sound of his voice saying, rise, honey, it's time to get up. Contemplate on the reactions of the disciples who, who saw Jesus alive again, but they didn't really believe it until they touched the holes in his hands and saw that it was him. Reflect on your own soul to see whether the resurrection really changes the way you live. How will it change you on Monday? Study passages like this one that talk about what the second coming will be like. Believe the promises of a God who died and who beat death. Ponder the hope that changes how we grieve. Long for the return of the king. Remember our resurrection. Second, Remind one another. I once knew a pastor named Jerry 
who visited a lot of church members on their deathbeds. It, it was a thing he did. A lot of people asked to see him before they died. And he told me that there is one thing that he says to every dying Christian who's on their deathbed. He says, when you close your eyes and then you open them and see Jesus, would you tell him that Jerry says hello? And he says that they always smile, no matter how sick they are. That is what it means to remind one another. In another letter, Paul wrote, we always carry in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We always carry in our bodies the death of Jesus, meaning here, we are meant to grieve together, to grieve the presence of death, and so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. That means that you and I, we are signposts to each other. We are living reminders of resurrection. Uh, let's get really practical here. I, I found a graphic as I was talking with the, the pastors uh, about what do you do to help grieving people? What common grace wisdom do you have? Uh, I found this graphic and passed it around, and they're like, yeah, that kind of summarizes a lot of what we've learned. I love the name. It's called Care and Feeding of Your Grieving Person. Here's a few pieces of wisdom for you. Be specific about how you can help. So don't just say, you know, I'm here if you need anything. Everyone says that. What you can do is say, hey, do you want to come to dinner next week? We're open on uh, Tuesday or Thursday. Or you can say, you know, do you need help fixing your car? I can do that. I'm really good at it. Remember big dates like anniversaries and holidays. These are the times when a person's absence is felt strongly. But also remember the little dates. You know, in my own experience of, of grief over my mom, I found that sometimes it wasn't Christmas where it hit me hardest. Sometimes it was a random Tuesday, you know, out of nowhere. And so text or send a message to each other. Hey, thinking of you. I love you. How are you doing? Mention the deceased person's name and share stories. You know, sometimes we, we avoid mentioning the person who has died and bringing him up in conversation, but it is really cathartic for grieving people to remem rem remember those memories and reminisce on them. You know, we just spent some time with my extended family, and it was so good for my soul to hear my aunts and uncles say, hey, you remember when Julie did this? We get to remember those stories together. Lastly, it's okay to be awkward. If you don't know what to say, you can say, I don't know what to say, but I love you, but I care about you. As it says at the bottom there, you don't need to be perfect, just present. So as your pastor, what is my hope for this church family? My hope is that the way our church family processes death with this combined grief and hope, I hope that it would be just bewildering to people outside the church and really strangely compelling. I want people at our funerals to say, this is so strange. There are the extremes of emotion here. There is wailing and there is singing. There is sobbing and there is shouting for joy. And we do it all because we worship the one who has conquered death and who will one day raise the dead. Let me pray for us. Father God, Lord and giver of life. You command this world with a word. You have sovereign power and authority over all things. Nothing escapes your view. It's true that you do bring all things together for good. 
But we also know, God, that you hate death. You hate it so much that, Jesus, you were willing to give your own life to defeat it. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you more for your resurrection, for not staying dead, but for coming out of that tomb and then leading us out of it as well. Holy Spirit, as we come out of this place, as we go about our lives with our families and friends, as we encounter living people, as we encounter death, would you help us, Spirit? Encourage our hearts. Strengthen our souls. Give us love. Give us truth. We pray this in the powerful, living name of Jesus. Amen. You can stand and we'll sing.